Welcome everybody to this week's podcast. We'll be taking a deeper dive into design thinking. I'm Chris Owens and with me here today is Elizabeth Phillips. Welcome back to the podcast, Elizabeth. Hi, thank you. I'm happy to be back. Great. So I think this week we're going to start off with this week's uh, TED Talk by Tim Brown on design thinking. So what was your overall take on this, on his talk? Well, I thought his talk was very interesting, um, even though he wasn't necessarily talking about education, so to speak. Um, I recognized a lot of the design thinking that we read about last week and the toolkit that we read in a lot of his examples that he was using. I agree with you. Um, I also thought it was really interesting that he went further um, into the particulars about how the human aspect uh, is really important and that participants involved in the design thinking approach should be the people who are actually affected by whatever the problem is. So the example of the clean water um, and getting clean water in India, that really struck me. It would seem so logical that the people involved in the design process were not only the people who needed the water, but the people who were delivering the water. And that these poor communities that are recipients um, totally needed this, a new method or an improved method, because they were losing a lot of water along the way. So I like that he didn't just improve um, the process or the delivery method, but he also improved the containers that they had the water in and how they were moving the water. They were probably just carrying it before and now they had carts that they were using. So it, it struck me because the solution involved all the aspects of the delivery process, but it wasn't high tech. Right. And I think a lot of his examples sort of went along those lines, you know, such an exciting concept. Um, you know, it used to be that designers were just talking about the end phase, you know, making a product pretty. Um, but I'm, you know, in this whole content, we're realizing how design thinking is a whole new level of thinking about design. And it's, you know, from the inception um, all the way up to the end product, but it's usually, you know, based on solving a problem. So it's really exciting to see his examples and see them come to life. And I'm going to bring up a point that I had read about. So IBM is really implementing this whole design thinking, and they teach other companies how to do this design thinking. And they found that the, you know, return on investment is so great. They're saving money, they're bringing products to um, market quicker. They're involving the human component to see what is it that the people want. And by doing this, the revenues have soared and the defects in the product have gone down by half. Wow. So it's pretty amazing how this design thinking can impact, you know, people on a small scale and people on a large scale and how businesses, if they adopt this, are, um, you know, winning because their customers are happy, right. their people inside are happy, and they're bringing products to market. So getting back to the video, uh, Tim used the term integrative thinking. Could you expound on this um, idea a little bit? Sure, because it wasn't um, a term I was familiar with um, when I first watched the video. So I you know, obviously had to think deeper about that. And, and his way of explaining it was that integrative thinking is allowing for the opposing ideas because they're necessary and viable for creating the new ideas and solutions. So, uh, for example, instead of searching for one perfect solution, they're exploring a lot of ideas in search of new ones. So allowing yourself to be open for failure 
in order to learn from and then also speed up the process. I think he talked about, um, you know, putting prototypes on the market quickly, knowing that they're probably not the perfect product, but they're going to fail. But there that allows them to learn from their failure and sort of speed up the process to, in search of getting to the perfect product or, or close to perfect product. So it's right. just, you know, allowing people to come up with multiple different ideas and having, you know, being open to not just focusing on one perfect solution, but allowing failure to happen. Yeah, I like the term, I just because when I think about integrating, I, it means, you know, melding things together. And so you're getting all these multiple parties that are coming together to come up with a better solution. It kind of reminds me of brainstorming. And then, you know, that's really what you're doing at the beginning of this whole process. You're brainstorming and getting ideas from multiple people, but it's not people who are unrelated to the problem. And I think that's the key to this is that it's the human factor and who's going to be affected by this, who is affected by this problem. So they need to be part of the solution. Yep. I think he called that, um, or in our, maybe it was our previous reading, the empathy, you know, aspect of. Right. Exactly. It is the empathy. You have to feel what they're feeling in order to be able to help find a good solution for them. Yep. I absolutely agree. So um, we know that design thinking is not a new idea. I think that we've given context to it now. And Tim indicated that he talked about um, a man called Brunel who designed the railways in England. And it made me think of Robert Moses and his designs for the highways and the parks, and in particular, Jones Beach um, on Long Island. So I wonder if he utilized design thinking when he was developing and making his ideas a reality. Do you think that he and Burnell thought about the design from a human-centered point, understanding what we need in the culture and context that affect the design? What do you think? I, I would imagine you would have to. I mean, it's hard to know for sure because we don't, have the information about their process that led up to the end product, but most likely they would have had to explore and exploit all the opposing ideas in order to come up with their, you know, world-changing innovations, I would imagine. I would imagine it would have been design thinking, even though we may not have known it was called that back then or, or wouldn't have those terms to assign to it. Right, right. We didn't have the term design design thinking. So I think it'll be interesting. You know, there's that new movie out about the life of Robert Moses. So I think I need to go and see that yeah. and see if maybe that can help me give an answer to this, you know, particular question. Yeah, you'll have to come back and let us know. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. I'll have to let you know. Okay, so Tim pointed out that the design was too important to be left to designers. So who do you think should be included in the design process and what important ideas do they bring to the process? I think all the stakeholders we were, we were mentioning, um, not just the person who's producing, but also the consumer, because they'll identify different problems and different roadblocks, but they'll also bring, you know, different ideas based on their point of view. Um, so in, for example, in the water, example, it wasn't just the people who were supplying the water, but it was also the, you know, people who needed the water should probably be at that table because they're all going to have different points of view and different needs. And that will help them come up with the best idea for the solution. Yeah, I think that's really true there. Um, I used to think that this might be though a contentious kind of process, because if you have people who have different points of view, 
And let's say you don't want to listen to the other people's because, you know, you think your view is the best. <laughs> um, it would seem that in order for this process to work effectively, that the people involved have to either be really open-minded and thoughtful listeners so that they can entertain the other ideas that people are bringing to the table without immediately dismissing them and saying, hey, mine's the best and yours stinks. Um, but I think maybe, I wonder if they have some kind of facilitators. Yes, that, that is super important. I think not a common um, <laughs> quality that people have, thoughtful listening. Uh, one yeah. maybe we all need to embrace a little bit more. But I used to do a lot of this type of brainstorming um, in my role as a communication specialist. You know, uh -huh. we would have public forums for education topics and we would invite the community to come in and they would sit at a round table with the administrators and some teachers and parents. And, you know, it was a bunch of different stakeholders to brainstorm ideas to solve problems that, you know, maybe were identified in the district. And it, we always would have a trained facilitator at each table because it helps to keep the order. Um, it kind of keeps the conversation flowing and makes sure that not one person is doing all the talking and that maybe some of the other stakeholders aren't getting a chance to speak. And, you know, if somebody gets hung up and married to their own idea, a facilitator can kind of help, you know, put that on a chart as a bullet point and then keep the conversation moving. And I think that might be a good thing to have if it was, you know, a really controversial topic or or a controversial bunch of people, maybe. <laughs> That's a really good point. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the new approach that he, uh, Tim spoke about, which is divergent thinking. So do you think introducing this makes a difference in the process of trying to come up with an idea for a solution? I think it would make a big difference. Um, you know, a, I think it was explained that divergent thinking is more open-ended. Um, it explores a bunch of different solutions because in that way you're, you know, generating ideas. Whereas the old way of thinking was just to take what already existed and work within those constraints before you would. So you would, you know, try an idea and it would fail before you would move on to like the next idea. So I think when it's open-ended and you explore a bunch of solutions all together, not only is the process faster, but it's also more, um, I don't know what the word is, but it's it's going to be, be more productive. Productive might sure. be the word we're, yep. we're thinking. Yeah, I thought um, this term divergent thinking, which means, you know, take, to me, taking different paths here, is really a better way of thinking um, because we're not working within any kind of constraints. It's almost like if you're daydreaming and you're letting your mind just flow and, and go in different directions. So you can, can come up with some, you know, new ideas and thoughts. It's almost like a, the terminology thinking outside the box. Yeah. But I read a little more about this and I really liked what um, someone else, I didn't write his name down, it's unfortunate. Um, but he said that we could think of it not so much as thinking outside the box, but maybe scribbling on the edges and the corners and under the barcode yeah. that when we're bringing these new ideas, mm -hmm. when we're bringing these new ideas in. And I, I kind of like that. Definitely. I thought that was, that was pretty good. Yeah, I like that idea too. It's sort of, you know, the age old, you know, you learn from your failures and it's just allowing yourself oh, to, true. you know, completely explore every avenue and every thought process and there is no bad ideas. Yeah, I agree with you. 
So um, I want to move on to the other reading by Schoen. And I really like the analogy that Schoen dubbed the conduit metaphor. So what did you think of it? Yeah, I loved it. It really um, helps, you know, to understand those problems that are inherent in communicating that we don't even realize um, you know, we all understand our words and, and what we're reading and what we're hearing based on our own experiences and perception, much like in the conduit metaphor, they, you know, they only had their own little world to, you know, to make sense of what was being relayed to them. So, and we all do that without even realizing it, you know, we are coming from our own experiences in our own little world. And that shapes our understanding in the way we think everybody's talking the same language, but really we're not. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a really good point because it was really interesting to see that one person lived in kind of a rock world and they're using rocks to build all their fences and the other person lives in a wood world and maybe the other person lived in, I forgot, was it like kind of like a desert world? Yeah, exactly. But that, the idea that their experiences were so vastly different, yet they could take an idea and um, retool it to with the what they had around them. And I found that really kind of fascinating it is and you're going to take what's useful for what you need to make it fit in your world you know in much the same way somebody else is going to take what they need to fit in their world so the idea of giving reason i thought was really uh, appropriate in describing what makes a conversation work well so sometimes when speaking to students i find there's a disconnect between the answer given by a student to a question and the answer i might be seeking I too have asked myself, how can I rephrase the question so that I know the student understands the lesson I was trying to convey, like the teacher did with her student. So what did you think of this idea of giving reason? Yeah, I, I really, I loved the example they used. And I think we so often um, underestimate the difficulty of communicating in general. You know, his example that you're referring to where he was asking the student, well, where does the sun go? you know, when the clouds are obscuring it from view, I think as an educator, I think, you know, I'm not a teacher yet, but I'm in the classroom. And, and I think it's sometimes frustrating because we have an answer in our head that we're waiting to hear. And they're not necessarily giving us that answer that we're expecting to hear. So, but we're forgetting, I think, that maybe they have a completely different thought in their head sort of like our conduit metaphor and that's not right, you know right. and that they're they're expecting a certain question maybe that isn't driving with what we're asking so i think for me the bottom line was you know that students and teachers maybe aren't talking enough or giving reason enough and i think that that's sort of been maybe um you know kind of not encouraged in the classroom a lot up until this point you know where you you don't really have time necessarily to have those conversations a lot you know you just want to get them to say the answer that you want to hear and we're not like appreciating the ex exploration around the conversation maybe yeah i agree because it's easy then to just this is what i want let's move on yeah. instead of trying to generate more conversation and trying to understand what the student might be thinking mm -hmm. so um i think it's a real kind of dance that you have to have between a teacher and a student and maybe we need to be more open we need to be more open to that yeah. so it is interesting how communication is so important mm -hmm. which leads me to my next question <laughs> of the example of the silent game 
like I thought this was really enlightening where the first child has to come up with a rule and apply it to a physical object. And then the second child has to, without any talking, has to mimic whatever that rule is or try and figure out what the rule is and then mimic that rule. And then there's a third child looking on and they have to think about what the rule is. So I want to know, what did you think about what happened at the end when they started having discussions about this. Right, I love you know, I all came up with different ideas. Yeah, I thought it was a really, really interesting whole experiment. Um, you know, I, th- it, I sort of made me think of the telephone chain game where you whisper something in someone's ear and by the time it gets to the end, it's completely different. But what, right. a, you know, what a difficult thing to do. I was looking at the, the pictures and, and trying to see if I could come up with what their rules were, you know, and it was it was really interesting. And it makes you really realize how important communication is. And I, it keeps coming back to these conversations and this communication where. So in the example with the conduit, they just use just words. And that didn't really give the appropriate message either. But when you're just showing people without the words, it's still not really coming across clearly. So, you know, I think the conversation back and forth between the two, show me, tell me, you know, all of those things, you know, are the only way to to come up with better ideas and better solutions. And it just exemplified how we misunderstand each other so easily. I have another question for you, and that's the the term reciprocal reflection. So this term was new to me. Um, Have you ever heard this before? And when does one begin to engage in reciprocal reflection? Yeah, I had never heard that term um, at all. But and I I think this is a little far-fetched off the topic, but it made me kind of think of when couples argue and they go to see a therapist who then teaches them how to communicate. So by teaching them to reflect and explain, for example, I said this, but I meant this. And the other person has to say, well, what I heard was, and those type of communication skills that you know we're not taught a lot of the times, and, and it's a big part of the design thinking, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that we don't listen enough and we don't um, internalize and take feedback from what somebody else says and and view it we'll say without uh, emotion and i think a lot of times we view things with emotion and that colors how we see an answer Mm -hmm. or we're applying our own experiences and perception to it and therefore maybe taking it out of context so i think that was this was really kind of eye-opening when we saw this so what do you think educators can learn from this silent game? Um, I think, you know, just bringing awareness to the fact that we all have multiple vision, that everybody has, um, you know, a viable, valid vision that might be different from our own. I think just learning the art of observation and reflection, never making assumptions, um, but also just to embrace the excitement of discovery. So I think an educator and a student can learn just as much from each other in this excitement of discovery instead of just wanting them to give that one correct quote unquote answer, but but listening to them too and having a back and forth in, in this excitement about discovering what each person is thinking is gonna make them remember the lessons and really truly internalize them. I think it's going to be probably a big leap for some educators and students to get comfortable having these conversations and, and the design thinking in the beginning of it. And it might take some getting used to. 
But in the end, I think they're going to end up with a more authentic educational experience on both sides. I definitely agree with that. I think getting out of their comfort zones um, is going to take work. And it's definitely going to be a leap of faith, I think, on the teacher's end, not so much on the student's end. Um, but I think the rewards will be well worth the effort if they try and put this into, you know, production, we'll say. Absolutely. So, um, I really enjoyed talking with you today, Elizabeth, and thanks for joining me on the podcast. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you.